Should geographers in Australia declare a climate and biodiversity emergency? What work does it do for us as geographers to declare an emergency? Who does it and how do we do it? We might call ourselves planners or social scientists or GIS technicians, environmental scientists, demographers, policy officers. We might work in academia. We might... Because we're geographers, we're really attentive to this change, the physical changes in our environment and to the disjuncture between that and the socio-political response. For many Indigenous peoples upon whom colonialism brought the unnatural disasters of occupation, dispossession and destruction, the world has ended before. And as a teacher, I think it's our responsibility to educate the next generation that'll be coming through. They'll be designing solutions to problems that we haven't even encountered yet. So we need to um, ensure that any declaration we have of a climate emergency is followed by action. To grow linkages and role actors and support in our quest for expansion and building momentum for climate action. Begin to reimagine and co-produce connections for justice in an era of climate catastrophe. Hello and welcome to a special episode of There's No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. I'm Jennifer Macy. This is a special episode brought to you by ACCESS, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong and the Geographical Society of New South Wales. Today, you'll hear a panel discussion from a recent symposium of geographers who gathered from around Australia via Zoom to discuss how they would declare a climate emergency. Last summer's fires have propelled the term climate emergency into the public mainstream and made climate change a very real and dangerous reality for many communities. Extreme conditions have contributed to extreme disasters. The worst, of course, has been the bushfires burning all over the country. The terrifying scale of Australia's bushfire disaster is beginning to emerge. The links between extreme weather and climate change. They're not prepared for the, the climate catastrophe that's approaching. And we are pushing the planet into a new and perhaps somewhat frightening geological as well as biological era. You are concerned about your saving your economies. I'm concerned about saving my people. You talk about climate change, um, ringing the climate bells. You know, I've seen elders ringing the, uh, the bells of, um, for this happening for a long time now. Even... The intention of having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth actually at the forefront of the climate justice movement. Students across Australia will join millions around the world striking for urgent action on climate change. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is not impossible, but will require unprecedented transitions in all aspects of society. Instead of living in fear, we can have hope for our country's future. But we can still fix this. You can still fix this. The longevity and severity of the bushfires along Australia's east coast and the smoke that lingered over Sydney and Canberra prompted many local governments, industries, organisations, peak bodies and academics to declare a climate emergency and call for immediate action on climate change. But more than that, this call to action was also a look inward, 
Many of those bodies signing up or making a declaration of a climate emergency turned the lens on their own disciplinary practices and examined their own culpability. By signing up, they pledged to make lasting changes to reduce their own emissions. So who's declared so far? Organisations representing climate scientists, engineers, architects, planners, medical professionals, lawyers, religious groups, small business and the arts. But as yet there's been no declaration from geographers. As a discipline whose members research, teach and advocate about climate change, social and environmental justice, this is puzzling. This symposium sought to rectify that by bringing together a diverse group of geographers from around Australia to consider how, as a discipline, geographers could declare a climate emergency. The panellists included Professor Richie Howitt from Macquarie University, Tim Wall, a Geography Honours student at UOW, Associate Professor Lauren Rickards at RMIT University, Associate Professor Fiona Miller, a human geographer at Macquarie University, Madeleine Bretag, a secondary school geography teacher in Trangy, rural New South Wales, and Dr Blanche Verley, a postdoctoral fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute, and many, many more who joined the discussion and brainstorming workshops afterwards. The panel discussion was supported by a Geographical Society of New South Wales Symposium Funding Award and organised and moderated by two geographers from the University of Wollongong. Carrie Wilkinson, a PhD candidate with the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities, and Dr Susanna Clement, an early career feminist geographer. Carrie began the day with a personal and professional reflection on last summer's bushfires. So this event is the culmination of almost 12 months of thinking, reflecting, writing and collaboration. So we began thinking about the climate emergency and declaration movement back in the smoky days of November 2019 which seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, but at the time, we were both trying to come to terms with the summer that was unfolding and make sense of our feelings by just doing something, anything, really. Um, but what started out as a conversation took shape as a draft paper, which then morphed into a panel session for the now-cancelled Annual Institute of Australian Geographers Conference, which then took on a new life and became this symposium. But the questions we are asking today and the themes we are looking to explore through the panel session and workshop not the same as those that were at the forefront of our minds when we started this conversation almost a year ago. So this symposium has taken shape as we weathered and continue to live through the environmental and social upheaval wrought by the effects of climate change and the bushfires of 2019-2020. I lived through the New Year's Eve fires that swept through my hometown on the south coast and have witnessed firsthand the devastation and loss of homes and communities, um, of local populations of wildlife, of entire ecosystems, and they're still recovering. And that has really framed how I have arrived at this particular moment today. But we have all arrived to changed by the events of the past 12 months. So this symposium has taken shape against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. Six months of lockdown for our friends and colleagues in Victoria, the gutting of the university sector, and the rising public outrage of Black and Indigenous deaths in custody spilling out into the streets in Australia and America. These are emergencies that have unfurled over vastly different temporal and spatial scales, but have nevertheless been at the forefront of our minds, our lives, our working, teaching and research practices and the public conscience. So, should geographers in Australia declare a climate and biodiversity emergency? And if so, what would this look like? Who makes it and what does it mean in practice? How would or should geographers, as this eclectic collective of people, trained in understanding space, place, environment and their interconnections, come together to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. 
We invite our panellists and you as our audience to reflect on who geographers are and ask what are our responsibilities and to who to declare a climate emergency and to speak out and act on issues of climate change. In using the term climate emergency throughout the symposium, we acknowledge the interlinked crises of climate change, biodiversity loss and social inequalities and injustice. The objective of this symposium, this panel session and this afternoon's workshop is to start a conversation. These questions form the broad remit for today's discussions and we hope to come up with some answers by the end of the day. So Susie and I are talking to you from Dharawal land where the University of Wollongong, Wollongong campus is located. And we would like to acknowledge that we are hosting this meeting on the unceded ancestral lands of the Dharawal, Wadi Wadi and Yuan people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to country itself. We understand that many of you will be watching not just from the Wollongong and the Illawarra area, but from your homes, workplaces and schools around Australia and indeed, maybe possibly the world. We would also like to extend our respects to any Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or First Nations persons who are watching today and acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and the world and their continuing connection to land, sea, culture and community. Now, the nature of an online Zoom meeting means that this event is being streamed across many different countries. And we are very fortunate to have with us today um, Rosie Goslett-King, who is a proud saltwater and freshwater woman of the Budawang people part of the UN Nation and Duraga language groups to lead us in an acknowledgement of country. Rosie is currently working and studying in areas of land care, conservation, environmental consultancy and Indigenous land management. And she has spent the last few years working as a manager of, Aboriginal, of an Aboriginal ranger team in the Illawarra region. Rosie has also recently commenced a new role with the World Wildlife Funds as the Women's Ranger Environmental Network Coordinator. Rosie is also a visual and performance artist and we'll put a link to her website in the chat. Thank you. That was a really nice acknowledgement to country and an introduction for me. So thank you. That was so first, just to explain, yes, I'm a Yuan Badawang woman, but I'm not on my country today. And we're not on, I believe we're all over Australia. So I can't officially welcome you to my country when I'm not there and we're not there. So I'm also going to do an acknowledgement to country. Um, so I'd like to pay my respects to the Darug and Gandangara people on which I work today um, and to any elders past, present and emerging. Um, I really encourage everyone to pay their respects to the country that they're on, that they're working from. Um, whenever you travel there, really, it never hurts. If you're unsure, it's sort of, I mean, it's not always clear the boundaries. So if you're unsure, it's best to just acknowledge if you're between two different countries, just acknowledge both of them. I love that some people have already done this. They already know what country they're, they're on. That's amazing. Um, so I just want to invite anyone else to pay their respects to the country they're on. Yeah, Michael Hewson from Rockhampton, uh, where the Durumbal peoples uh, are on unceded land. Thank you. Um, we have Wadi Wadi, Darul, Yuen, Wurundjeri, Gadigal, Gadigal and Mongol. Beautiful. So anyone can do an acknowledgement to country. Um, you don't need to be Indigenous. Um, it's just about paying respects to the people whose land you're on. But the welcome to country, um, yeah, does need to be by the people whose land you're on. Um, and especially if you can, an elder should do it. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you so much, Rosie. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And we no worries. Thank you. I just actually want to introduce um, Professor Pauline McGurk, who is the Director of Access, to say uh, a few words. So thank you, Pauline. 
Thanks, Susie. Thanks, Carrie. It's really great to be here this morning. Uh, those of us who are lucky enough to work at UON, UOW, rather, in the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities and to be part of ACCESS, we work every day on UN country. So thanks, Rosie, for acknowledging country and acknowledging that wherever we're tuning in from today, just giving us that connection to country. As many of you will remember a couple of years ago um, at an event of the Institute of Australian Geographers, the um, federal MP and Wiradjuri woman, Linda Burnley, Burnley said that what geographers and indigenous people have in common is a love of country. And I'm I suspect that it's at least, it's that that brings quite a few of us together today as um, card carrying geographers. So my job today is the happy one of welcoming you all to today's Geographers Declare workshop on behalf of ACCESS, as Susanna said, I'm the director. And we're delighted to be supporting this workshop along with the Geographical Society of New South Wales. Um, but I particularly want to thank Kerry and Susanna for providing us with the platform that today's event gives us for, I think, what's a really important conversation for us to have as geographers, as the people that are perhaps uniquely positioned to understand the impacts of climate breakdown across the physical and social worlds and across the more than human relationships that constitute those worlds. And I'm, I'm speaking to the converted here in many ways. As geographers, of course, we're also well attuned to the very uneven distribution of climate change impacts and how these distributions intersect with questions of justice, with questions about who and where and what bears the costs not just of climate change impacts, but of the impacts of how we respond to them as well. Um, and we're also attuned, of course, to questions around what aspects of climate emergency that we respond to and how and whose knowledge gets to be part of that and who gets to define what gets to be part of that. So I'm really excited by the way Carrie and Susanna have framed today's event as a question, because I think that recognizes that to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency isn't an innocent or a self-evident act, it's a political one, it's a performative one. So posing geographers declare question mark, I think means that we're not assuming that it carries the same meaning for everyone or that it is driven by the same motivations for everyone. And the questioning stance for me as well presents us with a great opportunity for us to think through what work does it do for us as geographers to declare an emergency? At what level do we expect a, a declaration to work at? At a rational level, at an emotional or effective level, at a political level, you know, as, a, as an act of, of, of catalyzing something? And what expectations do we have in making a declaration? Who are we speaking to? Who are we speaking for? All of these really important questions. But I think it also gives us a moment to reflect on why we as geographers when we habitually teach and research about climate change, why we have not yet declared an emergency when so many other groups, professions, universities have. And finally, I think today's event also gives us a moment to consider perhaps the more provocative question of whether it's too late to declare. Would we be more effectual actually putting our efforts into learning how to coexist with climate breakdown? So with these questions and lots of others in the air, I think I have a lot of anticipation for the day ahead. And on behalf of ACCESS, I would like to welcome you to what I think is destined to be a very fruitful and possibly provocative conversation. So thank you.
Thanks so much, Pauline, for setting up the day and, and for the support of access. So in this first session this morning, we have six incredible panellists, each coming from a different place in geography, and we'll introduce you to them in turn. But I'll give you a bit of a background to how we invited people um, and approached people. So it's important to note that the geography is a really diverse discipline, and, and this is one of the things that Carrie and I have been grappling with when we've been thinking through how do geographers declare a climate emergency? Who are we? We're really diverse. We are people who have studied and trained in geography. We might call ourselves planners or social scientists or GIS technicians, environmental scientists, demographers, policy officers. We might work in academia. We might be teachers. We might be people like myself who are now working within the public service. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to think about is if we're going to declare some type of emergency, who does it and how do we do it? And so we want to also acknowledge that geographers may be established, they may be mid-career, early career researchers, they might have tenure, or increasingly they might be in very precarious and casualised positions. They might be students in high school, primary school, at university, at different ages um, and different places all across the country. And so we've really been interested in hearing from lots of different people and we've reached out to people for our panel, but we've reached out to lots of different groups to be invited to this symposium today. So um, without further ado, I'll introduce our first panellist, um, Professor Richie Howitt. Richie retired as a Professor of Human Geography at Macquarie University in 2018 and his work on the social impacts of major resource and infrastructure projects on Indigenous land and more recent work on Darug custodians in Sydney has emphasised the interplay of social, cultural and environmental justice and we're really excited to have Richie join us. Thanks very much, Susanna. Thanks, Carrie. Um, I'm speaking to you all from Wallamata the customary Noora of Wallamai people of the Darug Nation in the city of Sydney. I've been invited by my Darug colleagues and teachers to walk in good spirit, as they put it, on paths of healing and belonging that embody the paths that have been trodden by ancestors and by many Darug generations. Um, and I've been very humbled by the enormous generosity of, of that invitation from people who suffered the first impacts of inv invasion. So Yanami Budri Gurmada, walk in good spirit, Didri We all recognise, I think, that we live in a time of when planetary assemblages of coupled human and natural systems are rapidly destabilising. And our discussion today offers us a welcome and quite rare opportunity, I think, to listen, speak and think across the discipline in Australia about how to make sense of those threats. Um, so in meeting to discuss how a geographer's declaration might help to address those threats, I think we've got an opportunity to listen to some diversity today. Certainly the currently dominant narratives of growth face an awkward paradox when we confront our shared trajectories towards catastrophe. And while te technological optimists might want to fantasise about geoengineering uh, solutions at global and even greater than global scales. I want to advocate a scale politics of catastrophe that relocalizes how we might attend to those impending and realized disasters by attending to what might be learned from Indigenous experience and how to better hold expert-centred knowledges, including our own, 
accountable to local relationships of kin and country in all places across spatial and temporal scales? How do we, the social fabric of connection and acknowledgement that listens as carefully as it speaks? Now, any declaration of a climate emergency by geograph Australian geographers, so I, I think should invite discussion that listens to, respects, engages deeply with Indigenous people's experience of rapid catastrophic transformation of coupled human naturals and systems at the scale of their known worlds. So we can consider what lessons and warnings might be drawn from Indigenous experience for our own approaches to both research and intervention. In many places across the planet, the lived and remembered experiences of genocide, of ecocide and catastrophe uh, recast those expert-centred narratives of impending failure of systems, not as predictive, figurative or metaphoric, but as experiential and material. They revisit an already experienced and often repeated ending of the world. So for many Indigenous peoples upon whom colonialism brought the unnatural disasters of occupation, dispossession and destruction, the world has ended before. So in the context of crisis narratives that encompass ecological, financial, political and climate um, dimensions, human societies face risks that were once unimaginable we approach thres thresholds of apocalyptic failure in planetary scale systems that are crucial to our survival. And we're complexly dependent on those systems that are at the brink of irreversible and consequential change. To quote W.B. Yeats, things fall apart and the centre cannot hold. In the face of such crises, it seems to me, as Yeats put it, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. We might think of the um, US elections as an example. So clearly the Anthropocene confronts human societies with previously unimaginable risks of the ending of the world. Um, but the building blocks of human society, the ontological certainties of existence have become uncertain and at risk. So a shift in scale, I think, brings different things into focus, leaving the scale of catastrophe at the global, risks making the problem literally unimaginable for many people and communities. Of course, the scale politics of genocide, ecocide and catastrophe always play out across and between the local and the global, the past and the future, the good and the bad and the ugly. Recognising that the global is always local and vice versa means that they've been rarely been wholly isolated local or solely global systems in operation across the Anthropocene. So as geographers, can we afford to simply shrug our shoulders and accept that this is how the Anthropocene will look? Should we simply accept that everybody knows this, everybody sees this, everybody should understand that this is how the world is ending? Should we accept that this is the nature of human destiny and take our role as geographers to just document what, hum what happens as humanity joins the parade towards mass extinction? 
My own view is that academics in general and as geographers in particular, we've got clear responsibilities that arise from how we come to know things and what we come to know. So I think that we might usefully declare our commitment to develop activities that contribute to ethical, sustainable and humane outcomes. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Richie. That was wonderful. Lots of thoughts. And um, I really, really liked how you spoke about scale and how if we think at a global scale, it's, it's almost unimaginable for the, for the way that we understand our, our understanding of the world. So really appreciate your thoughts on that to kick us off. Um, Thanks, Susan. We've got five minutes for questions. So this one is from Michelle. So Michelle says, thank you, Richie, really thought-provoking. Could you talk a little more about relations of power that are embedded in our catastrophes? Uh, look, I think that what we see over and over again is that um, many catastrophes, are reflect, they reflect long-term decisions that have been made by structures of power. Um, one of my graduates just this morning sent me a, a reminder about um, Trump's um, executive order about encouraging infrastructure. And given that we're about to be driven into an infrastructure-led recovery, what does it mean to invest in infrastructure? Um, and Trump's executive order to to reduce the time frame to reduce the assessment processes that are that are required to permit major infrastructure projects are absolutely guaranteed to increase the threat of flooding that um, affects poor and um, often vulnerable communities because he refuses to allow sea level change to be factored into the assessment of major infrastructure projects. Again, if we think about the way in which um, Australian governments have failed to take appropriate consideration of climate-related change, whether it's in relation to bushfire risk, um, we talk about the, the increased height of Warragamba Dam in Sydney and its impact on Gandangara and Darug um, sacred places in the, in the reservoir, um, and the exposure of risk to new development on the Nepean Hawkesbury floodplain. And yet this is all demonstrated um, as a way of developing the economy but that is an economy that is not sustainable. So I think that we do see those relations of power are in fact embedded over really long time frames. So it's not just that this catastrophe reflects this power structure. It's this power structure reinforces the, the trajectory of catastrophe over a long period of time. Thanks, Richie. Um, we have a question from Michael. Um, around geoengineering, how do you join an engineering discussion? Engineering discussions are always really exciting because engineers um, understand complexity and we're dealing with huge complexity. And I think that um, the difficulty is um, grappling with how do you get on a wavelength where we're talking about the same sorts of complexity. So engineers are often fantastic and understanding complexity by being able to hold certain things constant 
and then play with the variables um, in very measured ways. The sort of complexity that social scientists deal with, where where um, nothing is held constant in lots of ways, or you don't, you're unable to hold things constant in lots of ways, is the sort of practice of complexity thinking that I think can be incredibly useful. I also think that the dynamic in the discussion between um, engineering thinking and social science thinking can be incredibly productive because engineering thinking sort of puts the pressure on social scientists to really think carefully about the evidence that they're bringing into the discussion. So we've got one from Leah Gibbs. Richie, can you offer some suggestions for relocalizing catastrophe that go beyond seemingly simple individual actions? And then we've also got a great question from Donna Houston, which is, she really likes the idea that any declaration should listen as carefully as it speaks, but how can we engage in the task of radical listening? Um, two of my favourite people. Thank you both. Um, and uh, Leah, I'm not trying to relocalise catastrophe. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to relocalise thinking about catastrophe. Um, there's enough local catastrophes, I think, to, to be getting on with. Um, look, I think that... Um, in lots of ways, it's exactly the sort of things that I hear from my Indigenous colleagues over and over again. It's not, it's, it's not to appropriate Indigenous knowledge or to pay homage to Indigenous knowledge. It's actually in the processes that we work through to actually sit and listen and engage and converse with knowledge holders so i've talked about in responding to michael's question i've said yeah it's great you know we might have arguments with with engineers but we need to sit and talk and listen to them yeah it's exactly the same with indigenous people and i think that in many academic discussions it's so easy for people to think oh yeah we've we've read something about indigenous knowledge let's draw that in it's actually like the the, the um, evocation that i that i brought from direct people of yaname budjiri gumada is about walking together and not simply heading off on a path of your own it's about being welcomed waiting to be welcomed and then being a, a a respectful guest rather than saying, oh, now I've been welcomed, I can take over the conversation. Yeah, so I think that um, what Donna refers to as radical listening is about what Emmanuel Levinas talks about as ethical availability. Yeah, it's actually saying that holding ourselves accountable for being ethically available in this process rather than holding ourselves as the experts who define the problem and define the solution. It's about walking together. Thanks so much, Richie. Um, I recognise there's a couple more questions, but we have run out of time to ask Richie them. So maybe hold on to them and we'll come back in the bigger question and answer we have after the rest of our panellists. But thank you so much, Richie, for your thank work. Thank you. Um, and we'll move on to our next panellist. Yes, yes, thank you, Richie. Um, Echoing Susie, that was great. And as a, the partner of an engineer, my husband's a sustainability engineer, a lot of what you said there about geoengineering and conversation with engineers really resonated um, with, with the conversations that I've been having with him. 
So our second panellist is Tim Wall, who is a Bachelor of Science Human Geography Honours Candidate with the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities at Wollongong. But you may recognise him from his involvement in ABC's TV series Fight for Planet A, um, which has been gracing our screens lately. So we'll put a link up to that um, in the chat as well. But Tim is an honours student and his thesis explores municipal food waste composting with a focus on governance frameworks and rationales for food waste recovery and composting at the municipal scale. And yesterday he gave his final honours presentation. Um, so yeah, it's really great that he's been able to roll on into this. So we're very grateful that he's able to join us this morning. So welcome, welcome Tim. Excellent, uh, thanks thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name's Tim and you may recognise my roommate tonight from Craig uh, Newcastle, Spot Planet A. Uh, a little about me, I grew up on Nagario country. Uh, I'm from Kuma, the gateway to the Snowy Mountains. Uh, this, of course, put me at the doorstep of some of the most amazing yet delicate ecosystems. Um, and growing up near the mountains gave me a real appreciation of natural environment, but also gave me the opportunity to see uh, firsthand the impacts that humans have on such fragile ecosystems. Um, an avid skier, yet environmentally minded, uh, it was these human nature interactions um, that got me interested in studying geography, which uh, led me here to the University of Wollongong. But why study geography? Uh, be it human or physical geographers, um, geographers understand the complexities of our world and how minute changes can have widespread ramifications. Uh, so whether it be the spread of weeds in a fragile ecosystem or the importance of public transport accessibility, uh, geographers are trained to understand the complexities of everyday life. Uh, for this reason, we know that geographers are well equipped to fully understand the negative and far-reaching ramifications of global climate change. Uh, this is why I feel that geographers have the right tools and are the right space to declare a climate emergency. Um, so obviously we've already mentioned this, but why declare a climate emergency? Um, uh, declaring a climate emergency means acknowledging the state of our planet, uh, it's acknowledging the urgency of the matter, um, brings focus and attention to the issue and drives action to avert such a crisis. Um, I suppose this is particularly important for undergraduates and students, uh, being the younger generation, uh, we're, we're the ones that will inherit this planet and uh, I suppose when the rich coal investors die off, we'll be left dealing with the ramifications of global climate change. So declaring a climate interest, uh, climate emergency, sorry, is of utmost importance for the younger generation to, um, to do the best we can. Um, so currently I'm undertaking an honours year focusing on municipal food waste composting. Um, in writing my analysis, my thesis, I've been using a framework from a 2020 Buckley paper um, in which she conceptualises momentum as a configuration of three main interlinked dimensions. Uh, the first being directionality and disposition, which refers to the potential of interventions to solve problems generated in incumbent systems. Uh, the second being uh, linkages. The second being linkages, which refers to the capacity of an intervention to enrol a diverse range of actors and finally normalisation. So in applying this framework to our scenario, it is clear that we have the directionality, the potential to change, uh, the technology to do so, um, to reduce our global carbon footprints. Uh, importantly for today is, uh, is linkages. Uh, when I talk about municipal food waste composting, 
Um, I talk about uh, state funding. I talk about councils, uh, individuals, and and business support and how these linkages uh, build support in assisting the expansion process and creating momentum. Uh, and for this reason, this is what I feel we are here for today, to grow linkages, enrol actors and support in our quest for expansion and building momentum for climate action. Uh, it's clear that geographers should declare a climate emergency, uh, but what role do undergraduate students play? Uh, firstly, I think as students, it's our responsibility to be informed. Um, in properly understanding an issue, uh, you can begin to understand the steps and the steps moving forward. Uh, building from this, I feel like being informed lends itself to informing others. Uh, for me, I live with a house of house full of boys studying uh, finance, engineering, and medicine, and none of them really understood the seriousness of the issue at hand. Uh, for me, I was lucky enough to enrol the support of Craig Rucastle to inform my roommates. In educating my housemates, they were able to adjust their behaviours accordingly. They were able to step into the right direction, really. Uh, seen globally, students have and continue to play an important role in climate action. Uh, with their school climate strikes gaining huge popularity and traction. Uh, when considering the urgency of a rapidly changing climate, it makes complete sense for students, particularly uh, particularly geography students, to support a climate emergency declaration. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights as a student. And um, yeah, I really took away from that your emphasis on linkages um, and thinking about the the way that we can build support and create momentum through linkages. Um, also, just the point you were making about how we the students have a responsibility to inform ourselves and inform others. So I was thinking when you were talking about the idea of responsibility and we're not just teachers, we're not just students, we're not just um, academics, we're also housemates. And uh, thinking about the role of geographers as, as housemates, as family members, it was yeah really, really interesting. We do have a question from Blanche. So Blanche says, thanks, Tim. Wondering what you had learned from Fight for Planet A about climate change communication, e.g. focusing on what people can do and or stating how bad it all is. Um, yeah, I suppose that was the focus of the show. It was Craig trying to tell the nation uh, like the small steps they can they can make in changing their everyday behaviours to be uh, less carbon intensive, I suppose. Obviously, he made it clear that individual change is not enough, but it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction and it certainly uh, builds momentum towards that goal. Thanks, Tim. And I've got a question, actually. Um, so thinking about your... You're at the end of your honours year. You've um, you know, been studying geography. I've had the pleasure of having you as one of my students in second year um, and you've gone through to honours. So what next with all of these experiences? Maybe a big question because you still to submit your thesis, but, yeah, what next for you in terms of thinking about you're going to submit your thesis in geography? Yep, get the thesis done. And then um, so in looking at municipal food waste composting, a lot of councils across the state at the moment are rolling out FOGO. And I'd really like to work for a local council and help develop a FOGO rollout. And that, that's kind of where I see my career going to local government. I think that's great. As someone who lives in an apartment in Wollongong, I definitely would love to see that rollout. 
Um, so we've got another question from Anonymous. They say, thanks Tim, how do you think we might build more interdisciplinary connections and more connections in the community to build knowledge? How do we, how, how do we do that? Um, <laughs> obviously it's really important to do that. As Richie said, combining our knowledges, getting multiple perspectives, even those geographies, we, we think we have it all, but uh, just like Richie said, engineer can expand our uh, perspectives so much and that's uh, so important to moving forward and finding uh, the right approach. Thanks so much, Tim. Um, as a reflection, I, I really love the, the Flight for Planet A series and, and, and like all the stuff that Craig Rucastle has done, I know he's got another series coming up and working in government in environment um, policy making and programs, we cheer when these types of programs come on TV because we get um, so much interest from the public and, and our decision makers at the top of the departments start to take notice and, and there's a lot of public pressure that comes on um, that happened with the war on waste and, and this, particular, this particular TV show. And also the focus um, in the last week on biodiversity loss as a result of David Attenborough's most recent documentary that's come out on Netflix is also um, that. So I was wondering if you could reflect a bit in, in being part of the science communication push, the mainstream science communication push. What are your thoughts on the way that we've been communicating this emergency? And, and do you think, why do you think this mode through TV documentaries is, is becoming kind of effective to getting into, getting into people's heads? Um, I know that war and waste really reshaped got people thinking about waste, but I suppose the climate change is a bit different. Uh, but I think people have a better understanding that it is out there. I think TV, uh, Netflix, things like that have a really big role in um, educating the younger generations. It's, it's not the, the boomers that are watching Netflix, it's people my age. Um, and it's very important in educating those people. So they know what the problem is, they know what they're voting for, I suppose. Thanks. So we've got time for one last question, which is, from your understanding, what can university students do to acknowledge a climate emergency? Uh, well, I feel that at university you have so many opportunities. Um, so for me, it was um, going to strikes, um, learning all about it in class. At the university, there's so many opportunities to, to sign a petition, to, to rally for a, for a, a local candidate. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you so much yeah, for thanks, your time. Tim. Yeah, so big round of applause for Tim. Um, our next speaker is Associate Professor Lauren Rickards, who is a human geographer at RMIT University in Melbourne, where she co-leads the Climate Change Transformations Research Program and the Climate Change Exchange, which is a forum for engagement on climate change with community partners. Um, Lauren teaches undergrad and postgraduate course Climate Change Responses. She also co-leads the Nature Risk and Resilience Study Group um, in the IAG. And Lauren is, the, is a lead author in the forthcoming IPPC six assessment report, which um, I'm very looking forward to reading to seeing where the IPC sees us moving in the next um, decades ahead. Um, her research focuses on the cultural discourses and imaginaries we use to know and respond to climate change and including the idea of emergency, which is why we have invited her to speak today. So thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us.
A pleasure. Thank you so much, um, Carrie and Susanna, to be here and to Richie and Tim for getting us off to such a good start. So we're all here because we have a very um, strong awareness <laughs> uh, that climate change is a phenomenon that's here and now um, and very much rapidly emerging and has a potential, as I can tell you from IPCC conversations ad nauseum, uh, has a great potential to accelerate in an extremely non-linear way, extremely rapidly. And partly um, because we're geographers, we're really attentive to this change, the physical changes in our environment and to the disjuncture between that and the socio-political response, which particularly here in Australia uh, is a major disjuncture, a major gap uh, in what we're seeing because it's just not being treated as an emergency uh, in the way that the physical signs indicate. So today we know is October 11th. Uh, you may realise that the uh, carbon dioxide uh, levels now in the global atmosphere are 411.2 uh, and they keep uh, rising uh, in a very, very steady, uh, inexorable type of way. And so the question is, what's it going to take? What's it actually going to take? But what level of carbon dioxide and what level of impacts or human distress are we actually going to start treating this um, as the sort of emergency it is. Now an emergency of course is not clear cut, it's not straightforward to say what it is to respond uh, to something as an emergency. Emergencies um, as colleagues uh, Matt Kearns, uh, Ben Anderson, Kevin Grove and I have been exploring um, you know, are themselves characterised by potentiality. That's their kind of key characteristics, which means that they are themselves a form of a question. So they pose a question. They're, they're a, they are a, 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 um, a provocation to all of us. And the question is then, how do we respond? How do we frame them? How do we actually uh, create them into the sorts of emergencies that are useful versus the sort of emergencies that actually shut down the potentiality that we need? Some emergencies, um, such as the fires here, featured from um, earlier this year, are of course characterised by speed and shock, but emergencies are not always fast. Uh, we just need to think about our settler colonial history, as um, Richie referred to, uh, and think about the way in which many emergencies go on for uh, eons and eons. And in fact, one of the um, issues, of course, is that the obscurity of so many emergencies in the world today is what means climate change is so threatening. It's because of the intersection between the obscured slow emergencies, the ones that have been generated through settler colonialism, through industrial capitalism, through all of these extremely devastating and damaging processes, that we are in such a vulnerable place when it comes to climate change, which is, of course, being generated by those same processes. So there's this sort of double effect here. Uh, we have to call out uh, multiple types of emergency. But what does that actually mean to do that? And I'm glad uh, Richie referred to Trump and to um, his uh, refusal to talk about sea level rise um, because uh, some of the teaching I've been doing to students, um, perhaps in classes similar to the ones you've been taking, Tim, uh, and we've been talking quite a lot about sea level rise and we've been talking about um, different ways of responding to it. So if we think of climate emergency as symbolised, if you like, 
by sea level rise, by rising waters. We think of it as uh, the imperative to act swiftly and decisively, and it's there and it's knocking. The question then is what are we going to do? And in the sea level rise literature, they talk about three different types of responses. So one is the typical securitisation response. This is the resist approach where we might be thought to uh, be calling out to the climate emergency in our minds, uh, just a minute, I'll be just with you. I've just got to attend to X, Y or Z, be that COVID-19, dealing with uh, family issues, whatever else distracts us from actually focusing on it. Then there's the accommodate response, and that's where we might actually uh, kind of acknowledge and welcome in uh, to some degree uh, the kind of unwanted visitor, but we ask them to just take a seat over there. We'll be right with you. We, we, we see you, we hear you, maybe we've declared you and we'll be right with you, but right at the moment, uh, we just have to attend to something else. Then the final area is the one in which in the sea level literature, it's increasingly uh, acknowledged that this is the approach that's needed. This is called the sort of managed retreat approach, which is where you actually say, to the emergency, we've, we, you know, we, we see that you're here, we've told everyone here and we're creating a space, a time in which to respond. And the question then is, so what should we do? What should we do first? And so in a sense, if we think about this, um, not simply in relation to the, the physical effects of climate change, but as the emergency itself, when are we gonna create time in our lives, our workplaces, our institutions to deal with the climate emergency, it points to the um, awareness that we are going to have to increasingly move away from a resist approach towards a managed retreat approach. Because what we have to manage our retreat away from is distraction, it's away from inaction, and actually give climate change action, give the emergency space, uh, as I said, within our work. Now that includes work um, giving it space within our networks as well. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that we come to this as geographers, um, you know, not late in the piece, but certainly, um, you know, following the example given by many, many others. Some of those might be uh, research partners or groups that we're part of, maybe in our local areas and the Council and Community Action in the Climate Emergency, the case group, for example, uh, which happened to start in my local area, Darabin here, but it's now an international area. That is a really good example of some really, really provocative work that geographers are in a position to learn from. And one of the things that I really like about their approach is they talk about thinking of influence in four different directions. So they think about advocating upwards and so these are mainly local councils so up through state and uh, federal government of course also downwards whether or not these are the quite right the vectors but anyway downwards into the local community so myself as a resident for example but everyone else involved uh, doing a whole lot of work around education and mobilization Inwards, and so that's into the actual staff as well, and that's about the shift in mindset that's required to actually create that space in our minds, create that space in our lives. And the one I want to emphasise here is this sideways, moving through networks, and that's where we can actually start to engage because there are groups out there wanting to engage on this, uh, groups wanting to actually build these alliances, 
through this idea of um, declaring the climate emergency. And I think that's one of the key imperatives is that the invitation is there. So when we think about the climate emergency knocking on the door, we can't literally have groups, friends, colleagues knocking on the door, wanting us to join. And I think that is a really important imperative to keep in mind. And of course, this includes our dear colleagues uh, in planning and planning declare uh, is a very active group and I had the pleasure of um, uh, having uh, some engagement with them through the, the climate change responses course that I'm teaching and architects have also declared uh, in Australia and elsewhere and engineers who Richie spoke about uh, have also declared. And it's interesting here to think about these principles that the Engineers Declare Australia group have put together. You can see here a lot of resonance with the sort of thinking uh, that geographers do, the sorts of linkages that Tim referred to. You can think about all of the different ways um, in which we might find points of articulation with engineers. So that learning that Richie referred to about complexity, learning about what sort of evidence counts, etc. Learning to actually come together and think about these things in these more systemic or what I like there the phrase whole of life type ways. So to finish, I think it's interesting just to reflect on what principles of geographers declare might look like if we were to go down a similar route. What sort of things would we put on our circle if we were to think about them? And here are just a few um, suggestions, but of course it's a big um, conversation for us to have. Clearly, we would put space and scale there. Uh, picking up on some of the important uh, politics of those that Richie referred to. Clearly, we need to think also not just in terms of space, but time, the histories, the multiple histories, the presents, the futures, the fact that, um, as Richie mentioned, you know, for traditional owners and others, you know, the world has already ended before. It's such a powerful phrase. Then those questions of narratives and discourse, that's obviously something that geographers uh, work uh, very intently upon but likewise we have that physicality that material interest whether it's in relation to humans and non-humans or bigger earth system type questions and across all this the cross-cutting themes of justice and power and the multiple types of geographies so that's just a few suggestions to throw out there um, but just to conclude I think the emergency is knocking uh, it comes in many different forms um, but I feel like we have a responsibility uh, to stop resisting and to start accommodating, if not to actually fully uh, welcome it uh, into our lives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lauren. That was wonderful. And you've thrown out some fabulous suggestions um, that feed beautifully into our afternoon session where we would like to encourage people to think through some principles that we might want to, to work with. So that's really, really wonderful. Um, I really liked how you talked through the different stages that we are, people go through in terms of that coastal adaptation space. Um, so resist, accommodate or manage. Do you think we're in accommodate at the moment as, as geographers as a discipline or do, you, or do you think, where do you see us fitting? No, I, I do think we're in accommodate. I think, um, you know, probably a lot of the people in our broader social networks are in that moment too. And I think there's been quite a shift in Australia to move to that space. Um, and I guess that, you know, the question then is how do we um, move to that the metaphor becomes a comedy? How do we move to a kind of managed retreat from inaction uh, in a context where we have some very strong and increasingly um, 
kind of defiant resistance measures in place, notably the federal government, you know, the whole post-COVID thing. Um, so I think, um, yeah, one of the questions for us is to think about how that context in which there is such a push for resistance, how that actually affects our work and our work environments such that we're unable to find the capacity individually and jointly to create the space for climate action in our working institutions. You know, I really resist um, that kind of individual psychological kind of approach, uh, which you know, clearly is all part of it. Uh, but we have to see that broader context of our working lives. We have to acknowledge that you know, it's this non-coincidental intersection of increasing pressures in higher education, particularly on uh, the areas, the social sciences, the humanities, that tend to speak out on these things that pose a threat uh, to those wanting to resist climate action and the climate emergency. So, you know, these to me are very uh, interconnected and they do pose the risk that I think we get stuck in that accommodate, which is a really anxious and awkward space to be in. You've said it, you've got kind of an emergency sitting in your foyer, but you're kind of like, you know, trying to <laughs> scramble out the back door. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> the metaphor gets a little bit out of control, but <laughs> I literally feel like, you know, I have an emergency sitting downstairs and I'll yeah. get to it um, when I finish my list of to-do things. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that sense of collective guilt that comes from what are we doing? Yeah. Um, so looking at the slider, we've got a couple of questions that have come in. Um, Michael has asked, if science writing lacks social breakthrough, can the arts help? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, another one of the non-coincidental things is this um, attack on the arts because of this sense of the power that they have to break through uh, all of the things we do to numb ourselves. I mean, this is actually acknowledging the importance of the psychological side of it, but you know, all the things that we do to distract, to numb, to immunise ourselves, um, you know, most of the time just to kind of get through the normal day. But it is the arts that actually help to blast through that. And it's the arts that actually um, also often see things, I think, in usefully um, kind of stark terms. So, you know, in geography, you know, we do revel in complexity. And sometimes that's really good, <laughs> clearly. Um, but sometimes it does require just, a, you know, that kind of clarity of voice of the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the school strikes and the arts to just sort of say, it's wrong. You know, that's wrong. We need to stop. We need to do it now. What, what are you faffing about for? Um, and I think the arts can, can do that really well. What I would say um, is that the the arts, as in capital A arts in Australia, are absolutely infiltrated by the fossil fuel and minerals industry. Um, and I can post a, a link to um, an amazing artist called Gabrielle Duvietri, who's um, done an analysis of this, and we're both on the board of Climart, uh, that indicates just the extent to which the arts has been targeted for infiltration but for fossil fuel influence, partly because of that sense of their potential to lead public discourse and, and perspectives in a certain direction. 
Thanks so much, Lauren. Um, just in the interest of time, I'm going to archive some of the questions and we'll come back to them when we get um, the group together again, if that's okay. But thank you so much for your thoughts and um, sharing some suggested yeah, ways. I'll give those questions some thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of questions too. So we might move on though to our next speaker and I'll let Carrie introduce you. Yep, thanks, Susie, and thank you, Lauren. That was fantastic. The collaborations and stuff that are happening between geography and different disciplines at the moment as well, and the the collaborative learning, the networking. Um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting to see, and it's been really great to hear the similar synergies and what Richie, yourself, and Tim have been talking about with the linkages. Um, so thank you. So I have the great pleasure now of introducing our next speaker which is Associate Professor Fiona Miller from Macquarie University. So Fiona is a human geographer who conducts research from a political ecology perspective on the equity dimensions of environmental change in the Asia-Pacific, notably Vietnam and Australia. Her research interests include social vulnerability, society water relations and climate change adaptation. Fiona is currently undertaking research on climate-related loss and displacement in Vietnam. So thank you so much, Fiona, and I'll, I'll hand over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Carrie and Susanna and Pauline, Richie, Tim and Lauren for kicking us off with some really great um, provocations and uh, things for us to reflect upon. So I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you today from Gadigal Wongal country and pay my respects to Elders past, present uh, and future as well as country itself. Um, it is also appropriate uh, to begin by acknowledging that Indigenous scholars have repeatedly highlighted that the catastrophe many of us now associate with climate change, mass extinction, displacement, dispossession, loss, existential insecurity, uh, was first experienced by Indigenous peoples with colonisation. Emergencies are socially, spatially and temporally differentiated through political economic structures and socio-natural processes. As such, it is often the most marginalised or disadvantaged in society who experience emergencies the earliest, the hardest and the longest. I'm one of the co-founders of the Shadow Places Network, um, a network of critical social science and humanities scholars, artists and activists. Uh, related to today's discussions, we were bold enough to uh, write a manifesto last year uh, which is published on our website. Uh, the main motivation of us writing the manifesto uh, was to uh, grapple with this issue of um, political uh, declaration um, and to begin to reimagine and co-produce connections for justice in an era of climate catastrophe. We tried to mobilise the genre of the manifesto to imagine other possible worlds beyond the current crisis brought about by globalised late capitalism, climate change and the ongoing legacy of colonialism, as well as to enact a collaborative and emplaced politics of care, responsibility and justice. So this is an urgent task. In so-called Australia, our contribution to and experience of climate change has been made more extreme due to the particularly violent nature of settler colonialism, as apparent in the extractive nature of our approach to agriculture, water, soils, minerals, humans, and non-humans. The recent decisions regarding the Narrabri 
gas fields, the destruction of the Yukon Gorge caves, the mass fish deaths on the Darling River, the fires that swept through Yuan, Darug, Dungari and other countries, indefinite refugee detention and the relentless rise in Aboriginal deaths in custody are all clear manifestations of the violence associated with the ongoing colonial project and late-stage capitalism. They are connected. A case in point, this image from two, uh, 2014 shows two police vehicles in northwestern New South Wales that have been paid for by Santos Energy, the company which was recently granted approval to exploit the Narrabri gas fields. Yet this is no conflict of interest Rather, it is a powerful confluence of interest between state actors and the fossil fuel industry. Yet the harm associated with Australia's approach to development and non-action on climate change extends far beyond our shores. Though a signatory of the Paris Climate Agreement, Australia is an emissions superpower due to our combined territorial and exported emissions and is responsible for 30% of global coal trade. This reflects a profound and genocidal investment in extractivist socio-economic organisation and has far-reaching implications for the lives and livelihoods of millions of people in the Asia-Pacific who are particularly vulnerable to climate risk. Australian geographers are able to clearly read the contours of this map of climate injustice and Australia's historical and ongoing role in producing such a map. By extension, Australian geographers must contribute to a counter-mapping project shaped by different ethics of care and responsibility rather than extraction and enclosure. As Pauline mentioned earlier, uh, towards this, I'm reminded here of a speech by the Honourable Linda Burney on the occasion of the 90th anniversary of the New South Wales Geographical Society. And I've got it here in um, a screen grab of a tweet by Laura Hammersley. Hi, Laura. <laughs> um, so Linda Burney is a proud Wiradjuri woman and the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the House of Representatives. She's also my local member. In her speech, she identified common ground saying what geographers and Australian Indigenous people have in common is a love of country. So whilst the emotions of despair and grief may now be our constant companions, it is this love of country we experience in our everyday lives and in the practice of geography that is key. A love of country as well as an appreciation of scale and complexity diverse relations with place and uneven development mean geographers are well-placed to respond to the climate emergency. As the crises we confront intensify, so too does protest, with a groundswell of courageous activists speaking out and putting their bodies on the line. I'm thinking here of the Pacific Climate Warriors, student-led climate strikes, the Black Lives Matter rallies, and the protests against cuts to universities. In each of these, in each of these domains, um, children, Aboriginal families, activists and their allies, and university students have been confronted by an increasingly emboldened and heavily weaponised police force that seeks to intimidate 
and silence peaceful protest. In such a context, a declaration is the very least that we as geographers can do from our relative position of privilege in the academy to show our solidarity for people on the front line of the climate crisis. But more than a performance of solidarity, a declaration can guide our relations with students, colleagues, communities and countries towards an everyday politics of resistance, care and justice. A declaration is not only an act of witnessing, but also signifies a willingness to be held accountable to prevent further injustice and ecocide. As such, any declaration we pursue um, must be accompanied by an action plan with clear targets and relations of accountability. Towards this, we must redouble our efforts to genuinely decolonize the discipline and center indigenous and subaltern uh, perspectives in our research, teaching and institutions. So as to address the structural politics and social equity challenges associated with both the climate crisis and a just transition beyond it. So thank you. Thank you, Fiona, for that beautiful presentation. Um, I'm just going to share the screen with the Slido link again. So if anybody has any questions, um, please do put them, put them up. So, Fiona, just while people are gathering their thoughts and digesting, um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your work with the Shadow Places Network because that has been really um, instrumental to Susie and I's thinking um, around the climate emergency and the idea of making a declaration. We were really drawn to yeah, the, the manifesto that you have put together with that group and, as, as you said, you know, you, you've made the bold move of, um, of making a manifesto and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that process and the work that you've been doing with that group. Yeah, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, there's a number of people who are part of the network online here today. Um, it brings together um, a few people um, across Australia and internationally um, both within the academy and outside of it. Um, uh, and we were originally very inspired uh, by this uh, idea of shadow places um, that um, Val Plumwood has written about in particular um, that draws our attention particularly to um, the often neglected um, areas and people and places that have been harmed by capitalism and indeed climate change. And uh, we were really inspired by this concept and how um, we can engage with this to think not only about um, our research and teaching, but also through um, a, a politics, we can um, enact a more careful uh, way of listening, engaging and connecting with shadow places. Uh, so in the tradition of slow academia, uh, we're taking time to build the uh, network and originally we um, jointly wrote this manifesto which I've presented on behalf of the network at the IAG last year and we've now elaborated on that in a, a longer academic paper which uh, is currently under review. And um, we're just about to launch uh, uh, some more um, provocations, um, an A to Z of Shadow Places on our website 
And we've also um, provided bursaries to um, a couple of uh, artists uh, who are engaging with the concept of shadow places. So these are some of the things where the, the network is currently involved with. Um, and um, yeah. No, thank you, Fiona. It's been wonderful going to the IAG conferences over the last few years and seeing different people from the network um, present. The I've really, really enjoyed seeing the trans, like the the process of of how Shadow Places Network has come to be over the years through different presentations by yourself and Jess McLean and and that group as well. So it's been it's been really great. Um, we do have quite a few questions coming in. Um, and I am conscious of time. We have Madeline coming up who's taking um, a bit of a break out of her recess. So I'm just going to ask her one question, Fiona, and then we'll definitely come back to some of these when we have the group discussion. So keep sending in your questions because we'll be asking them. Um, so this one comes in from Anonymous and they say, um, thank you. I was wondering if you would like to reflect from your own experiences, what kinds of actions might the geographer's declaration include? Yeah, I think... Um I like that slide that Lauren shared, um, the upwards, sideways, downwards, inwards um, uh, idea in terms of where we can put our energies. And um, I think there's obviously through our research and teaching, many of us are already um, engaging uh, with the multiple crises that we're living through in different ways. Um, but I also think uh, through the academy, uh, through the IAG, through the ARC, through our own universities, um, we can uh, articulate quite strongly um, uh, not only um, the nature of the, the emergency and how it affects different people and places in different ways, but also appropriate responses. And I think there have been a number of universities around the world that have um, moved quite uh, strongly in terms of divestment um, and decarbonisation in different ways. Um, and I think that's an obvious um, opportunity we have. Um, but I'm also um, conscious, and I know, I know Lauren raised this as well, like the limits of our own capacity in this space. Um, you know, the sector's in crisis at the moment and many of us are really um, struggling with the huge uncertainty and the threats associated with that. And um, I guess it's through alliances through the relationships we had with colleagues and our partners that we can draw some strength to, to really continue to, to um, maintain pressure and um, uh, continue to pursue these really important um, structural causes of the crisis. So, because universities in particular are massive um, uh, players. Um, in this space, both as sources of knowledge and teaching, but also in terms of flying, not that any of us are doing that now, but consumption and other things, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Fiona, for that wonderful presentation and questions. And we've saved the questions that have come in as well, and we'll definitely revisit those when we have the group chat at the end. So thank you very much, Fiona. And I'll hand over to Susie to introduce our next speaker. Thanks so much, Fiona. Um, so our next speaker is... Madeline Bretag, who is a secondary school teacher based at Trangi Central School, which is sort of um, Western New South Wales. Here she teaches junior geography classes um, 
to high school students. She is uh, she has a Bachelor of Arts where she initially majored in history, but she was drawn to geography in her final year when she wanted to move into teaching. She's passionate about teaching sustainability and leading through example and has been spending a lot of time recently at home making her yard into a more sustainable space by creating a veggie garden, constructing a chicken coop, um, and in with the with the purpose to be more self-sustaining. Um, and this is something she started to introduce at school with the kids that she's teaching to help them learn about sustainability, be aware of their environmental footprint, and to foster enthusiasm for growing their own food. So I'm so um, stoked to have Madeline join us. Thank you so much, Madeline, for taking a little bit of time out of class today and um, getting out of playroom duty, which I'm sure is is exciting as well for you. Always a win. So yeah, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to listen to everyone else's, but um, thanks to Fiona for your talk just then, which was very interesting and a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before or had ever heard about. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wongabon people who are the traditional owners of the land, which is actually Wiradjuri land um, out here, which our school sits on. Um, I you're just going to have to listen to me as a talking head because I have not prepared anything um, to present to you guys, but um, I've just put a couple of things together, of, I guess my experiences and my thoughts, and so I'll start by running through that and hopefully that'll be okay. Um, so I moved out to Trangy four years ago. I made, or almost five years actually. I made the first seven-hour drive from Wollongong to Trangy, um, which was probably the longest that I'd ever driven uh, myself. And my introduction to Trangy was a 40 degree plus day in the middle of January of 2017. And my only reprieve on the day was um, getting back to the air conditioned caravan park uh, where we were staying. And then since then, it's felt as if every summer out here has become even more extreme in terms of heat, um, dryness. We've just sort of not even yet overcome the drought, but that's been quite an experience out here. Um, I'm lucky in the fact that I can escape the worst weeks of summer when I come back to um, see my family and friends in Wollongong each year, um, but that still doesn't ease my concern about the fact that um, every year we seem to have a new high record summer day, um, even in Wollongong and especially out here. Um, and I think in terms of declaring the climate emergency, I think it is necessary for us as geographers to declare that. Uh, just because it is something that, I mean, academics like most of you and professionals like teachers um, are trained to understand this. And as a teacher, I think it's our responsibility to educate the next generation that will be coming through because these are the people that um, they'll be designing solutions to problems that we haven't even encountered yet. So they need to fully understand um, what's going on. And it's, it's involving history and geography together because we're looking at the past to plan for the future or to address problems that will be coming up. I think that professionals need to um, need to educate not only our own children or our younger generations, but also it's our own generational groups so they understand what's happening in our environment around us. Because, I mean, personally, I know I can't always feel, I don't always feel trust for our elected leaders. I don't think that they always have you know, our best interests in heart um, when they make decisions. I think a lot of decision, decisions are being made um, without a conscious thought about what's the impact on the environment and how we're going to have a sustainable future. 
Um, I don't think that we can trust that they're always going to tell us what's happening in our own backyards. So we need to be educated. We need to educate those everyone that we can so we know what's happening. Um, so I think it's up to us, to our students, our friends, our family, our neighbours, everyone to understand and share what we do know so that when we are responsible for electing our politicians, that we can make a educated and a conscious choice about who we're electing and what they're going to be doing for our environment. Um, Declaring a climate emergency is only going to be effective, like Fiona said, is if we have an action plan or some sort of plan to follow it. Um, I could quite easily declare that every student in New South Wales should have a um, computer, a laptop, which I think Kevin Rudd did do several years ago, um, but that doesn't take into account that we've got kids out here with no internet at home, we've got kids with um, parents who have never used computers. So it's coming up with a plan that's actually going to follow um, this claim that's going to be feasible that we can introduce. So that is quite similar to a lot of grand claims that we hear from some politicians that, you know, big promises and then no follow-up. So I think it is important to declare, you know, this is happening and we are experiencing it, but it's something that we need to set up a plan of action for academics at university and also for um, classrooms as well throughout the schools. Um, so I think if we do, which we should, declare a climate emergency, it needs to be followed um, with education that allows teachers the ability to focus on climate change as what should be the greatest concern to our global population right now. Um, students need to develop an understanding and care what is happening and how our use of natural resources and our footprint on this earth can be reduced, which I think um, is something that is changing. Uh, I know that personally every year I start my um, junior classes with a, a survey um, and I think it's actually come from, I'm not actually sure where it came from, but it's got about 15 things and they, they rank what they're most concerned about, which, you know, I think they send out to Australian citizens quite often. And um, I've noticed just in the last four years that climate change and concern for the environment is actually creeping up into sort of the top five concerns for kids in this age group, which previously when I first came out here and I did that, it was right down the bottom. So I think it is becoming something that they do care about and they are concerned about, which is, I mean, the first step because there's no point claiming this and, and saying that it's happening if no one's going to care about it to make something of it. Um, so right now, climate change is actually only mentioned a total of 10 times in our 7 to 10 geography syllabus, and these aren't mandated focus study areas, but suggestions of what can be looked at as an example for some of our topics. That being said, I do know that the majority of geography teachers do incorporate, incorporate climate change into their programs and their lessons, um, which makes sense, as these are teachers who have first-hand experience and a deep understanding of the causes and the impact of climate change on so many facets of all of our lives. Um, I think the biggest problem with geography teaching at the moment is that we have so many of our junior geography classes that are being taught by those out of their teaching area. So we have, which um, I'm not blaming teachers for that, but it's just being put into this situation where you, you know, you take on a teaching role and you're a history trained teacher or, um, you know, economics and then they need to fill the position because we don't have enough trained teachers and they go in there and it's just 
they try their best, but it's not always, you don't get that first-hand experience. You don't have that understanding to teach the kids. Um, and so because there is such a shortage of those trained in that area, it would be great to see more enrolments in geography, which seems to be picking up from what I've talked to, to Neil, who I think is working with you guys and people that I know still at uni, that it is becoming more popular, which is great to see, um, and leading that into teaching so we have that experience coming into the classrooms. Um, and I'll, I'm almost finished. I'm conscious of going over time. I don't want to take too much time up. Um, but I would like to finish by quoting one of all my all-time favourite movies. So unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So the Lorax is a film that we actually look at in geography and it ties into a lot of the stuff that I do with my 910 class. Um, and because it so aptly demonstrates the consequences of our actions if we're only looking out for ourselves, if we're not looking holistically at um, we, what we do need to survive, but our impact on the environment. Um, and my personal belief is that we all need to have a stronger connection to the earth that feeds us and ensures that we survive. Um, which seems to be something that a lot of people don't have these days. Um, we've got so many people that live in metropolitan built-up areas and they don't have that, that backyard that I benefit from. They don't have, you know, a bush just around the corner from them that they can go and connect with nature. Um, and I think that more people need to get back out into nature and reconnect with their environment and grow their own food, even if, um, I think it was you, Carrie, saying just if it's a couple of pots on the balcony, everyone can do something little. Um, or at least learn about how the food that you buy from the supermarket shelf actually ends up on your plate. What is that process? What, um, you know, our food miles, the, the impact of um, transportation and all that sort of stuff. Um, and most of us need to take responsibility for our personal choices and the impact that they have because we as the consumer, we drive production industries. So I think we all need to care a whole awful lot so things can get better and they can. And that's me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maddie. Um, that was wonderful. And I am, I had I had a question in my head around like how much does the curriculum kind of mention climate change, but you answered it and yeah. not, not an awful lot in a in a meaningful way, I guess, or a well, way. Yeah. So I actually wasn't sure and then I got my syllabus out this morning um, just to put that in there. Because I know that it doesn't specifically we don't have a topic that looks at climate change, but we've got um, for example, in 910, environmental change and management is our, is our sort of focus area topic, which leads to looking at climate change and the impact. Um, and it does mention it, but it's not, you know, you have to teach this, you have to look at this. Mm, that's so interesting. Um, we probably have time for just one question because I'm conscious that we, we want to fit in questions at the end for everyone. Yep. Um, so one of the questions we've had come through would be, it's from Anonymous, um, what are the capacities or capabilities of teachers to respond to students' climate anxieties? So you mentioned that your students are um, saying that they are concerned about climate change increasingly. Mm -hmm. How do you manage students feeling anxious about this? Is yeah, I, I haven't. I can understand why they feel anxious and I've heard all the um, data that's come out of studies saying that it is something that worries kids a lot. Um, I haven't had the experience yet of having a student with, you know, quite concerning climate anxiety. I think it's it's a good thing that it's becoming, not so much to make it anxiety, but that they are having those feelings of it's something that we need to be concerned about. So I, when I see that and um, when I have students talking about it, 
just, um, you know, focusing on sustainable solutions as well. So a lot of the geography syllabus is what are we doing um, in terms, for example, if we're looking at sustainable food production, what are some new methods, some new technologies that means that, for example, out here we've got um, cotton is a big crop that people grow, which always um, surprised me considering how much water that it consumes. Um, but, you know, you look at how it has changed. So, for example, cotton isn't as a water-intensive crop. So I think looking at those sustainable solutions and even if it's just something little, um, that can ease the anxiety, I would imagine. I think it could ease the anxiety a bit. Thanks so much, Maddie. I really appreciate your thoughts and your time. Um, we're going to move on to our next speaker. If you do have time to stick around, please do, but feel free to yep. go and jump into class. Um, so I'll let Carrie... I'll stay for as long as I can. <laughs> thank you, Maddie. Thank you. That was fantastic. So thank you so much. Um, so our last speaker that joins us this morning is Dr. Blanche Verley, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. So Blanche is a climate change education communication practitioner and researcher. She is involved, particularly interested in climate change's effective and emotional dimensions and how this influences people's different capacities to begin and continue engaging with the climate crisis. Um, and we've really enjoyed reading Blanche's, Blanche's work um, and we're very excited to have her with us today. So I will hand over to Blanche. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me along. Um, and yeah, thanks Carrie and Susanna for organising and also to all the panellists so far. I think that what I'm saying will probably kind of echo a lot of what's been said already, so I'll try not to dwell too long on it. Um, I also just wanted to acknowledge that I'm here on stolen and unceded Gadigal country um, at the University of Sydney or at my home, yeah. Um, so I wanted to begin taking us back a year ago, um, even just before most of the worst of the fires last year, um, at the Pacific Islands Forum last year. Um, Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, refused to sign a declaration um, referring or using the language of climate crisis um, and advocated for that declaration referring to the climate reality. Um, and that was after the uh, Pacific Islands Development Forum um, declared a climate crisis. Uh, so that was a declaration not involving Australia. Um, so in response to uh, that the Prime Minister of Fiji, Frank Bainimarama, um, had this tweet uh, which said, um, you know, watered down climate language has real consequences like waterlogged homes, schools, communities and ancestral, ancestral burial grounds. So um, echoing some of the previous speakers, although we obviously need to um, ensure that any declaration we have of a climate emergency is followed by action. I wanted to begin with Frank Bainimarama's acknowledgement that how we describe the climate situation matters um, and focus on what kinds of action are spurred by different representations of the issue. I also think it's worth mentioning that it's quite a, I think, significant time in the climate emergency movement uh, it's obviously suffered a bit of a loss of momentum due to the impacts of COVID-19. Um, last year, we had climate emergency being recognised as the Oxford Dictionary's phrase of the year. 
Um, and since then, we haven't heard so much about the climate emergency movement. So I think right now there's the possibility to both re-energise and I guess what I'll be suggesting, perhaps reorient um, the direction of that movement. Um, and I think that geography is uniquely placed to do that because um, uh, some of the things that people have already mentioned about the, I guess, unique um, uh, research and teaching that geography does, particularly that um, geography is a discipline focused on human nature relations. Um, and also I think the particular parts, of, I guess, some of the research that geography has done that's really um, influenced my thinking um, includes that which documents the way that language influences real-world climate impacts, broadly understood, um, such as the disempowering rhetoric of climate refugees and some of the problematic ways that climate vulnerability can be used to disempower rather than empower people. Um, and also geography um, has helped me and I think a lot of other people um, gain a greater understanding that climate impacts arise uh, between the interplay um, between atmospheric, ecological and social conditions. And I think that within the climate emergency movement, there is sometimes a failure to recognise the, the contribution that social conditions play in climate impacts and that can lead to um, an argument for emissions reductions at all costs. So to just um, briefly explore some of my hesitations around the emergency language, um, there's two short pieces of writing here that you can click through to if you like. Um, one's from Kelly Albion, who at the time of writing was at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Um, Kelly now works at 350. Um, this is on why calling for a climate emergency is not climate justice. Um, and in that piece, Kelly writes, it's clear that when emergency powers are invoked, people of colour and those on the margins of society bear the consequences. The urgency framework enables people to support false solutions like nuclear, untested geoengineering, handing over power to private corporations to fix the problem for profit. Under this scenario, the ends justify the means and all the existing power structures and injustices are reinforced. Another piece there is summarising some of the key themes from the National Climate Emergency Summit that happened in Melbourne in February this year, which now seems such a long time ago. Um, and that's uh, documenting how many speakers um, and how much of the rhetoric coming out of that summit was arguing for a war-like response to climate change. Um, I personally feel that the tendency of emergency, of climate emergency language to slip into um, justifying states of emergency and emergency powers is a really um, a, a tricky issue that needs to be considered really carefully. So I think I'll just leave it quickly with two provocations that we might consider. The first is, what if we declared a climate crisis following the language that Pacific Island leaders use? Um, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about these provocations, but as arguments for them. Um, regarding the term crisis versus emergency, when I, when I hear crisis, I think of 
an issue arising from systemic intersecting ongoing problems that therefore require rethinking, deliberation and system change. I think that emergency can send us into uncritical panic and reactionary responses sometimes. Um, Using the language of crisis rather than emergency avoids the, the conflation into states of emergency and emergency powers. Uh, Relatedly, what about if we declared a climate justice emergency? To declare a climate justice emergency would uh, would be to clarify that inequality between people and species is at the core of the issue and protect us against the kinds of emissions reductions at all costs sort of rhetoric that can easily come out of uh, climate emergency discussions. Um, so I'll just leave it there. I hope that um, I can't see the time on my computer, but I hope that that's all right and welcome any questions. Thank you, Blinch, for that incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking um, discussion there. I'm, for one, have been really grappling as well with the language of climate emergency and all that, like the, the politics tied up in that. So thinking just about the summer with the different states of emergency that we endured then, but also thinking about like what does it mean to declare an emergency in particularly in other people's names? And I'm thinking in particular of the, the Northern Territory intervention and how that was framed in terms of an emergency and the injustice and everything that was around that. Um, so, yeah, thank you for raising those questions around language in particular. Um, they're very important discussions to have. And we've got some questions coming in, um, so I'll jump straight into those. So we've got one from Michael who um, gives a provocation. So he says, thanks, Blanche. Use federal funds to facilitate new coal mine town economies with timeframes that enable change. Discuss. Yep. Okay, so that's a nice broad one. Thank you, Michael. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm the best placed person to um, be addressing that, but um, obviously I, I think in, I can see the other question there as well in terms of reclaiming and rephrasing climate emergency. Understanding that for, you know, coal mining communities, what's felt as the climate emergency is the threat to economic security um, and, and connecting climate emergency to, for some people, this is an economic emergency, um, an issue of economic justice as well. I think that, um, yeah, I think there's potential there to be, um, I, I do think that emergency can be reclaimed, but I think mostly we're not reading other people's declarations in terms of the body, like you, you get the, the title says a lot. So I guess that's my kind of thinking around, like it takes a lot of work to uh, switch how people relate to climate emergency. Um, so, sorry, that's a bit of a vague response, but. No, not at all. Like the the idea of like the language, like Fiona's point that she appreciates you raising the dangerous implications of the the language of emergency. Um, yeah, and, and and as you said, it's not just climate; it's social, it's economic, it's all these different things that mean so many different things to so many different people. Um, so we've got a, a follow up, I think, from our anonymous prompt. So how can we reclaim the phrase "climate emergency" as geographers, and how can we extend that to other declare movements? Yeah, I mean, I guess these are questions for us all to um, deliberate on in the later session. Um, I I don't have, I I don't really feel settled on how I feel about this um, issue either. So I don't really have an easy answer. I find it really quite troubling. Um, 
Uh, someone mentioned earlier, like ontological insecurity or existential insecurity. And I find that um, I often feel so uh, confident with what I think about climate change. Um, and that in itself kind of brings a sense of security, even if you're just really adamant that things are wrong. But the climate emergency stuff really unsettles me because I, I both agree and disagree with how, how, how it plays out. So, yeah, sorry, I don't have any easy answers there. I don't think there are any easy answers. <laughs> and that's part of the thing about um, getting together today to have this conversation is that we can come together as a group to unpack and disentangle and yeah, get into the nitty gritty of these big questions around language and around implications. Um, I've got one last question that's come through. Um, well, I think it's more of a comment, but maybe you'd like to respond to this comment. Um, so a core problem are the false solutions. But as Tom Holler, Tim Holler has argued, we don't have time for false solutions. We need fundamental change. Yeah, great. Um, I don't know if that was Lauren Rickards commenting, but I've heard Lauren Rickards talk about false solutions before. Um, thanks, Lauren, um, whether that was you or not. Uh, and, yeah, I think one thing that I really found valuable from hearing Lauren talk about climate emergency stuff earlier was um, the idea of, like, a false time economy in terms of solutions. So the solutions that might seem quick to implement, but that can then, uh, you know, take so much time to repair and fix. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's plenty of false solutions. And um, for, for geographers to develop a climate emergency declaration, I think is exciting because of the potential to um, really think really carefully about what we're saying and declaring when we do that. Um, and to, to, I think, I think we have the capacity to guide how other um, institutions engage with this by having a really considered, um, careful um, declaration that um, builds on a lot of what the uh, other speakers have mentioned around climate justice and um, scale and inequalities and those things. Thank you, Blanche. And thank you for that comment to wrap up our panel session there. There's so many synergies between the different talks around like temporalities, linkages, space, all the stuff that geographers love. Um, so it's been really good. Just a comment that's come in, I think it's off the back of Blanche's talk, is surely we can we can or should redefine and reclaim the phrase climate emergency as geographers. And I think that's an excellent starting point to think through. So thank you so much for the person who took that in. I think I'd go, like to go back to a question that we had for Madeline. Um, so we had a question that came in from your presentation that I really wanted to follow up with, which was around how can we support, you mentioned that a lot of the geography teachers aren't actually trained in geography. They kind of fall into it through, through other roles and how we can support um, those particular teachers to, to have those conversations with those students that you were advocating for. Do you have any have any thoughts on how we can support teachers to to do geography? Yeah, I think um, I know in the past that they the department has actually um, put into place sort of uh, retraining um, programs. So a lot of uh, history teachers who then might develop an interest in geography or have understood that that's where you're more likely to get a job only because there's um, not a lot of history. English, which a lot of people are trained in, positions available in schools. Um, so there are a lot of of those teachers that have gone back and retrained to become geography teachers. So they'll actually do um, university online, or they'll go back to go back to university and study those units to be able to teach it. So I think it is 
um, it is definitely spreading because um, I, on a couple of um, forums and or Facebook groups and stuff like that, you see a lot of history teachers that are taking that step to actually understand what they're having to teach. Um, and other than that, I, I don't think I really have the answer. I don't know how we do support them. Um, I think it, with benefit of professional learning um, and just having those online platforms where they can ask those questions. So because the um, geography, I guess, online faculty has realised that there are a lot of teachers teaching that subject out of their area, they've developed these Facebook groups and um, chats and things like that. So you can seek that support um, if they're not understanding what they're teaching. And I think that's sort of the step at the moment, there's probably a lot more that we could be doing. Um, I just don't know what it is at the moment. <laughs> it's a big task. Um, thanks so much for that. So I have a question from Michelle, which I think is aimed at Fiona. Um, so how do we move beyond white, effective, so eco-apocalyptic, -apoc that's a hard word to say, imaginaries? In other words, what interventions are required for alternative imaginaries? Uh, thanks so much, Michelle. I I agree. I think, um, you know, a number of scholars and others have highlighted the dangers of sort of these apocalyptic narratives and how they can be very disempowering and also take too much space away from imagining something otherwise. And so I think uh, the opportunities that geographers can particularly um, grasp here in terms of um, generating alternatives uh, are really in um, the areas of collaboration uh, with uh, uh, those outside the academy, particularly artists, um, great storytellers, those who can yarn, because it's that... Um, it's those stories and I think art in particular that uh, people can grasp and understand and be inspired by. I think it's also um, that we need to also step back and I think this is a point that Richie stayed with, um, mentioned earlier that um, we're always sort of focused on the declaration, right? And what we also need is this um, ability to listen and um, engage in different ways. So that kind of radical deep listening uh, is required. Um, but I think Blanche really touched on, um, I think some of the anxieties many of us have about um, an emergency declaration, emergency talk, is that we've seen, um, particularly with the vulnerability discourse, that it can be used to um, push forward really regressive um, interventions. And so I think, um, and we've also seen, particularly with the politics, the social movements that... Um, They've tended to not be climate justice movements in the true sense by putting for by allowing those who are directly affected on the front lines of climate change to be at the centre 
of those movements. So that's been one of the criticisms, particularly of Extinction Rebellion. So, um, yeah, they're just some quick reflections. I hope that helps. Thank you. That's great. Um, we have another question that um, comes from Leslie, and I, I think it's directed at Lauren, but also welcome any of our panellists to jump in and, and give their thoughts. Um, for those who are within universities at the moment, there's a fight going for institutional survival, keeping your place. And I also think um, thinking about the next generation of geographers coming through, the people looking for jobs in all parts of the workforce, it's, it's definitely a fight to, to, find, to find a place and, and do the important work that we want to be doing. How do we see creative opportunities for geographers to continue to thrive and survive? That's an open question to any of our panellists who want to jump in. Thanks, Leslie, for that question. I think it's absolutely um, front of mind for so many of us. Um, it, you know, and I guess there's, there's a sort of geography-specific element to it, but then there's the broader kind of academic element to it. And one of the first things I would say is that increasingly where those two things don't necessarily always overlap. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, Madeline's demonstrating the school system, but also more broadly. I mean, geography is kind of a way of thinking in a sense. So um, it's not like it has to be within that institutional bounds. But focusing on that, I mean, this is um, kind of a way that we respond to this kind of whole budget-cutting kind of approach that the universities are taking and the question, you know, it's, it's all framed so negatively. It's like, what has to go? You know, what are the costs? It's not about what we're investing in. And if somehow we can turn that conversation around, so the question is, what are we investing in now? What do we need to invest in? Trying to push aside the kind of very, very narrow, economistic kind of notions of what the federal government thinks we should invest in. And perhaps there is an opportunity there, potentially, to sort of have that moment of reflection, to have to use the disruption. Because the thing is that, you know, obviously we know the universities are not perfect, so it's not like this kind of disruption comes and, like, we're losing, like, these perfect institutions. They're so riddled with deep-seated issues anyway. So we have to avoid that kind of, um, you know, it's often a kind of adaptation paradox, you know, of protect and preserve what you have. Well, actually, I don't think we need to be doing that. So maybe in the disruption there is a chance. As for what that means pragmatically, I'm not so sure. But it does strike me that a lot of what we do as academics is actually beyond the reach of government. Um, and, you know, I don't, not to dismiss the kind of importance of having a paid job and, and regular time and proper work plans and hours and et cetera. Yet this activity here today, this Institute of Australian Geographers that we're all part of, none of this is, you know, our paid work. You know, it's complementary. It's part of it sort of seemed to be nice. But this is voluntary. And so, you know, perhaps it's in this turn to the kind of unpaid work but also the kind of stuff that's beyond the reach of the institutions that we need to really grow geography, grow geography outside of those reaches, which is slightly different to outside universities, but it's sort of within those interstitial spaces. Um, and also in our writing, I mean, sure, some of the writing comes directly from projects, but 
you know, I can get to find a minister that actually reads the stuff we write. We can we can use that subversively. So I don't know if we can somehow try to find these spaces and advocate. And then the last thing to say is simply to, to kind of look beyond our disciplinary boundaries and build these alliances with like-minded groups, um, whether in planning, engineering, etc. But I'd be interested to hear what you think, Leslie, because... Would anyone else like to make a comment along that kind of line of thought? Yep. Can see Richie reaching for the mic. Yep. Yeah, if I can say something, because I think that I just want to make some links between a couple of things. Susanna, you reflected on your role in the public sector and the notion that there are policy makers and decision makers. Um, and Lauren, you just said, you know, nobody reads what we write, you know. Um, and so... It's and I want to link back both to Susan Caldas's comment in the in the um, Zoom chat, and to some of the stuff that Madeline was saying as well. That who we one of the provocations that you gave us was to think about who the audience for geographers are, and we so often think of audience as to who do we want to speak to. And part of what I'm trying to say is who do we want to hear? Who do we want to listen to as well? And there's this really, um, David Malouf talks about the, the, the radical notion of an audience and the very first audience, very first production of Shakespeare in Sydney was made up. The audience was jailers and, um, convicts. And the performers were jailers and convicts. So there's a really interesting way of, that an audience brings things together in very um, unexpected ways. And so I'm just wondering, um, Susan and Madeline were reflecting on how do you support these people who are supposedly teaching geography, who have no idea what it is they're teaching. We've faced over time the um, the political interventions, if I'll speak carefully here, the political interventions into curriculum development have, that have tried to silence um, parts of what we have to say. Um, as an early career teacher, I had the, the interesting experience of introducing a new social science curriculum, primary social science curriculum, um, into a very conservative rural community where people were adamant they only wanted the three R's. They didn't want their kids to learn about environmental relations. Um, and that so that we've actually got some hostile audiences that we have to engage with. And some of those hostile audiences we have to hear and engage with as well. It's not a simple process. So I think part of the geographer's declaration might be a declaration of commitment um, and the organisation of how we deliver on a commitment to listen and engage, not just to speak and insist. Thank you, Richie, for those wonderful thoughts that have really brought together a number of threads that have kind of inhered in through the through the six presentations we've had this morning. The idea of radical listening, returning, I think to I think it was Donna who raised that that question in response to one of the presentations. Who do we listen to? Not just who do we speak to? And um, I think that's one of the things we're really looking for out of today, particularly the second half, is to is to think about our positionalities and to think about the networks and connections that we have and want to foster and the relations that already adhere in those and 
the opportunities. That was one of the things I actually, when I was writing my kind of introduction for this, I was t- playing backwards and forwards with the, who do we speak to? But I was also thinking, when do we remain silent? When do we create the space for other conversations to come to the fore? And yeah, and then it comes back down to, like my brain is firing in a million different directions, I, I must admit. But then it comes back down to that idea of language that Blanche was raising about climate emergency, climate justice as a social issue as well. And yeah, that, that tweet that you had from the Fijian Prime Minister, I think it was uh, as well, like really spoke to those sorts of things about those sorts of issues as well. So, um, but I just wanted to thank all of our panellists for this wonderful discussion and emphasise that it's the start of a conversation and we're really looking forward to continuing these conversations in the second part of today, but not just that, but moving forward um, after today, continuing those conversations as well. So thanks again to all of our panellists. It's been wonderful. After the panel discussion, participants took part in smaller brainstorming workshops to work out how best to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. While they're still working on the wording of that declaration, these are the key takeaways from the day. Participants agreed that geographers should make a declaration that recognises the climate crisis, biodiversity loss and social justice issues faced by the multiple emergencies that are unfolding. Participants agreed that geographers are well-placed to bring together and add to the declarations made by other disciplines. How geographers do this and what the wording of such a declaration will be and who'll be involved is still open for discussion. So anybody who'd like to get involved in the development of the next steps are encouraged to get in touch via email. The address is geographersdeclareau at gmail.com. This episode of There's No Place Like was recorded live on Tuesday, October the 13th, 2020. The panel discussion was supported by a Geographical Society of New South Wales Symposium Funding Award, and this podcast was funded by the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space. The Geographers Declare Symposium was organised by Carrie Wilkinson and Dr Susanna Clement. The organisers would like to thank Inca and Vele Centala, Tanil Mifsud, Makrita Solite, Laura Hammersley and Pauline McGurk for their support and help with the organisation and running of the symposium. The Geographers Declare email address is geographersdeclareau at gmail.com. There's No Place Like is a production of Access and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. Listen free wherever you download your favourite podcasts. For more information and the latest research from Access, go to the website. Just search for UOW and Access in your internet search engine, which will take you straight to the Research Centre's site. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy. Thank you to Kevin Brand for the original theme music. And additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for joining us.